Let's turn to John 19 together as we continue our worship. John 19. And as you turn there, I just want to thank you as a church for your expressions of kindness to me and to the other pastors uh, throughout the last month. Um, I know that uh, many were immensely encouraging to us and just saying, saying thank you. I, I don't know where uh, Pastor Appreciation Month came from. I'd never heard of it. Until a couple, like I've been pastoring a while and I had never heard of it until like a few years ago. I don't know if Hallmark's trying to like make some extra money on the side. <laughs> but it's cool to, to just hear those expressions of how the Lord's at work. I, I'm not just grateful for your gratitude. I'm also grateful. It's Thanksgiving week. It'd be good to say this. Um, for our long time and devoted members of this church who have been serving for so long, I was reminded of that Wednesday night. I'm also grateful for um, the new and the striving, those who come in and are excited about seeing the gospel advance here. It's, yeah, amen. <laughs> we need it. You need the, the age and the stability. You need the youth and the vigor. You need the means. You need the willingness. And God brings it together here. And two things that I just see that are true by His grace, not perfect, but true, is this, this Christ-centered word. Like we're, we're oriented around the Christ-centered word. And that's a non-negotiable around here. Um, and then life together as a church. This isn't just a a repository of information, but there's like relationship and life. It's good. And I'm grateful for the opportunities we have in the future. Um, I'm really excited about what God's choosing to do here. And maybe sometime in the future, we could talk more about that in coming weeks. But now we want to focus on Jesus and his word. The study today is going to take us from verse 38 all the way to 20, chapter 20, verse 18. So 1938 to 2018. But I'm going to only read to start verses 38 to 42. Let's pick up there. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. The first successful flight of a heavier-than-air machine happened in December of 1903 on the shores of my home state in North Carolina, the Outer Banks, Kitty Hawk. It would be those infamous bicycle bicycle makers and repairmen, Wilbur and Orville Wright. And uh, it was probably, it's debated, but it was probably the event of the century. And the craziest thing about it
no one would believe it for five more years. One had remarked just a couple months before this had happened, people will fly at the same time they hit on perpetual motion. They said flight is about as possible as a perpetual motion machine. They'd heard rumors that these guys, not just Wilbur and Orville, there were several people trying to figure out how man could fly, and they're like, not happening. And that wasn't just anecdotal. It was like factual. I mean, it was... <laughs> in fact, this is... Uh, uh, Simon Newcomb, none of you would know his name, but at the time he was kind of like uh, the scientist du jour. He, he had been doing some formal research and publications on this very thing, like trying to just say, this is a fool's errand, people, you need to stop this. And with unassailable logic, uh, he had testified two months before the Wrights flew that no one would ever be able to fly. It's total nonsense. And he says, even if a man did fly... He wouldn't dare to stop because as soon as he did, he'd come crashing down to the ground. And so the invention would be absolutely uh, irrelevant. It's unuseful, unhelpful. The Wrights tried to give people a heads up. Like, no, this thing really works. They called the Associated Press and said, hey, come to Kitty Hawk. Come see what we're doing. Uh, And they they turned it down. And the official response of uh, the editor-in-chief at the AP at the time was, why would we print such tripe? Undeterred, after their successful flight, the Wright brothers came back to their home in Dayton, Ohio in 1904, uh, determined to make the machine more functional. It only could fly in a straight direction. They thought that it needed to be able to turn, of course, and so uh, they actually rented out this local field in which they would perfect their craft. And I want you to keep in mind, it was an open field. (laughs) And, and, And they... They figured it out. I mean, they were flying this thing every day for miles at a time. And so they wanted to do an official reveal. And so they called the local newspaper editors to come and send people out. And so they were going to do this climactic demonstration to finally prove that flight was indeed possible. And on that particular day, 15 to 13 guys show up and the engine didn't work on the plane. They said, look, we can get it off the ground so you can get an idea of it and come back another day. And they flew the plane about six foot off the ground for a little while and then put it back down, but nobody was impressed. They said, look, give us till tomorrow. The next day, only three guys showed up, and the engine was still messed up. And then after that, they would not come back. It gets crazier. The engine does start working. They do start flying this thing. 20 to 30 miles at a time. Now think about this. There's a machine flying around Dayton, Ohio. Reports are pouring in. The the field is located like beside a railroad and a highway. Reports are pouring in from school children, from parents, from local farmers, that there is a, a machine flying out there, and the editors, it's like they don't believe it. They said, Uh, People keep calling the office to inquire why there's nothing in the paper about such flights, and these callers are getting to be a nuisance. And when somebody asked them, why later, like, why wasn't it in the paper? They said, we just didn't believe it. But some people even felt sorry for them. One of these uh, managing editors of the Dayton Journal said, I used to chat with them in a friendly way and was always polite to them because I sort of felt sorry for them. They seemed like well-meaning, decent enough young men, yet they were neglecting their business to waste their time day after day on that ridiculous flying machine. I had an idea that it might worry their father. They even became the butt of jokes. I mean, this is October 1904, so it's several months after they've been flying this thing around for a time. And it like became a local joke. The joke's not funny, but I'll read it to you anyway. (laughs) This was published in, uh, in the humor section of the paper. 
When inquired a friend, will you wing your first flight? Making fun of them. He responds, just as soon, replied the flying machine inventor, as I can get the laws of gravitation repealed. And you know, I, I guess the skepticism's warranted. I mean, it's easy for you to, you know, be 100 plus years on the other side of history being like, well, what was their problem? But that kind of stuff just doesn't happen. Like, I mean, the world had been in existence for thousands of years and nothing like this had ever happened. Like, you just... Objects heavier than air don't fly. People don't fly. They, they were being rational. I mean, it is... It totally makes sense. And it, it's kind of weird because, like, it... it it makes me sympathetic because I realize there's all kinds of stuff that we don't really know. Think of, think of the sheer amount of information that you believe to be true even though you've never seen it. Or in our AI-generated culture, you may have seen it and it may have not been true anyway. This whole story... Kind of sounds like the resurrection, doesn't it? It happened. It was inevitable. People saw it. They wrote it down. And yet people would would say, I just can't believe that. They would make fun of them for it. Just in case you didn't know. Uh, disbelief in the resurrection is not a, a 21st century thing. In the first century, no one, let me repeat that, no one believed in the resurrection. Except, except, for this small group of people in modern Palestine called the Jews. And not even all of them believed in it, only those who belonged to the Pharisees. There was a group called the Sadducees who thought that that was out of bounds too. But hear, hear me well, even those, that little group of Jews in that little part of the world that actually believed in, in, in physical resurrection, like a body coming back to life from the dead, even they thought that it was going to be an end-time event for everyone, not something by one person in the middle of the timeline. Nobody believed that. They just knew that it didn't happen they would speak of it in classical Greece and in Rome as something that they could imagine, but it was never something that, that could occur to them. You're like, well, what about all this stuff about the afterlife, about Hades, about uh, the Eleusian fields? You know, like, what, what, are, what is that? That was not bodily existence. They believed in some kind of an afterlife, but they thought it was like this, this spiritual, wispy kind of a thing, you know, something like a consciousness, but like real bodily existence, it doesn't happen. Like this is your one shot to have a body, but you may be able to experience some kind of life afterward. And so this idea that this Jesus guy is like physically resurrected from the dead, that seems impossible. This isn't as modern liberals would say, the spirit of Jesus lives on in our hearts. That's not what's being said. What these guys are saying is he had a body you could touch his side. He ate fish. <laughs> you know, like, it, it's real. And for John, it's a huge, huge deal. It, it's like, it's the pinnacle of his gospel. Because it's the one thing that actually proves that this Jesus, this crucified king, is actually the Lord he says he is. John's been trying to show us the whole time just a little more background, don't worry, I'll get to the story. John's been trying to show us the whole time that the, this, this Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the ruler of the world, the rescuer, the hero. 
And, and he did that through all these signs. Remember, like, first 11 chapters? Jesus keeps doing these amazing things where he just shows his power over, like, death and disease and even the, the physical order over the demonic realm. I mean, like, he's just, he's large and in charge. But then the, the, the book takes a weird turn because, like, when Jesus is at his height, when he's at his most popular, when he does his biggest thing, when he, like, when he raises a guy from the dead, and that guy's up and walking around, I mean, he rides into Jerusalem with that press having preceded him, and they're yelling, King, King, save us now! Like, like they're thinking, this is the king, and John's like, I would be thinking, if I was John, all right, I'm just going to close the book right here. We, We got it. But John is so stubborn, because he will not give up on what the Old Testament says of what this king is going to do. The king doesn't just rule and reign and dominate, but oddly, the Old Testament was saying that this guy would be dominated, that he would die. There were these indications that the hero of the story would actually lose to the enemy and somehow in that be a sacrifice for all those who would believe and trust in him. And so John is spent all the way from like 12 to, to 19 showing us that that ultimate death, that shameful, degrading death in the crucifixion was all according to the plan of God. Jesus is doing this on purpose. It's fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. Like, it's all part of the plan. He's going to die. But guess what? It's one thing for him to die. But there was more to the plan than his death. He wasn't just a sacrifice. He was a sovereign. I don't know about you, but it ain't very useful to have a dead president. I mean, it's one thing to say that, the, that this Jesus guy was supposed to die, but he still had a whole like, program to fulfill. Like He was still supposed to ascend to his Father in heaven and then come and return and rule and reign and be with them. He promised all that. So like, what good is it if he dies and he stays dead? So, so John, knowing that nobody would believe this, it's going to do his best to say, it actually happened, and let me tell you some details. He's going to drop names, places, historical details. I mean, he's just going to let you have it for 20 plus verses here. <laughs> like, like the Wright brothers. Like, he's going to give you like, the editorials, the testimonies, like the details. And the whole point of this section is to affirm, to affirm that the crucified Lord actually overcame death. Crucified Lord doesn't make much sense. Like, you can't die any worse way. He actually died. That's clear. The crucified Lord actually overcame death. His program's on schedule. He is who he said he was. And, and instead, of, um, instead of giving you, like, a bunch of evidences, like, there's... I don't know, I could probably come up with eight. I want to just tell you the story. That's what John does. He doesn't say, all right, here's the eight reasons why I believe that Jesus rose from the dead and you should too. He just tells you the story. So I'm going to tell you the story. True story. Three parts. Three movements, if you will. Don't listen for the movements, just listen to the story, but they have titles. The first is the preparation. We just read it, the preparation. There's, um, there's a burial, and that in and of itself is a miracle. You're like, oh, big deal, burial. <laughs> uh, it's a big deal, because uh, crucifixion deaths weren't allowed to have burials. Remember I told you a couple weeks ago that the point of crucifixion was publicity? Like they were actually trying to make a public statement. Like, don't mess with Rome. Slave scum. So crucifixion was a technology that, that actually maximized pain and possibility of life. Like, you couldn't just kill yourself. Like, the, 
You can imagine, sorry to talk about torture devices for a moment, but you can imagine a very painful way to die. You can imagine a very slow way to die. But to maximize the pain and the amount of time like spent like wiggling around in death so that everybody could look at it, like that's what crucifixion was. And even after they died, they would leave the guys up on the cross for as long as possible until they needed another cross. To be like a billboard for anybody who wanted to challenge Roman authority. So, Jesus, as one crucified, shouldn't have even been buried. He should have just been picked to pieces by vultures on a cross. And yet, Pilate realizes that he's got a problem on his hand with the Jews. He's got some existing political tensions that I can't explain today. But he's doing his best to kind of placate these, these people to some degree. He stands firm at some times, he bends at others. One of the wealthy guys in town by the name of Joseph of Arimathea like comes in and he says, hey, let me have the body. Give me the body. And Pilate by this point has already said, hey, you know what, we'll, we'll kill these guys early. We're going to let these guys enjoy their Passover. They've had enough. So Pilate's already been open to a quick death. So that happened. But Jesus, as you know, didn't die uh, by Pilate's hand, he died at his own. He gave up his own spirit. No man takes his life, he laid it down. And yet, Pilate does allow the body to get off uh, the tree. So the wealthy guy gets this, and then all of a sudden there's this other guy named Nicodemus who we saw back in chapter 3 who comes in, and he's another wealthy guy. He's politically well-connected. He was in the Sanhedrin, which is kind of like the Jewish Supreme Court, and he's got a lot of money. And he's like, they collude together and like, hey, you know what, let's put them Let's put him in a special spot. And what I want you to hear in this is that where they put him is preparation for maximum verification. Where they put him, like this little scene about the burial of Jesus seems tucked away between the crucifixion and the resurrection. It is preparation for maximum verification. These two guys are in love with Jesus. They're secretly, I mean, they do it in secret. They're afraid of the Jews. They're politically connected. They've got a lot of means and resources, and they're like, okay, we can help in this way. Let's honor this man in his death. Because here's what the Jews would have done with the body. Because ultimately, they didn't want the body hanging on there, stinking up their Passover, literally. So what a Jew would have done with the body of a crucified person is they would not have put it in a family tomb. A, because Jesus' brothers weren't around, they wouldn't have taken it. But what they would do with Jewish crucified is they would put them in a mass grave because they didn't want them defiling the family tombs. They thought that these people were cursed, and you want to spread that around to your dead relatives. So Jesus could have ended up on the crucifixion compost of the Jews. That was the other alternative. He just gets thrown in with everybody else. Now, can you imagine? What, how, how do you verify a resurrection of a mass grave? By the time vultures have picked the body clean, look, we ain't got lunch for like another hour, so just hang with me. <laughs> they don't do DNA tests. There's no, way, there's no way that the resurrection could have been verified if the normal process of mass burial for uh, crucified Jews would have taken place. It wouldn't have taken place if, if Pilate would have had his way and just let the guy hang on the cross. Like, there's some providential things coming here that are preparing us for like maximum verification. And like in this particular instance, it's these two guys who we don't know except for this one Nicodemus guy who meets Jesus this night and he's scared and the other guy's scared, but they finally find the boldness to get up and say, you know, we're going to give him a proper burial. And a proper burial for them consisted of like actually wrapping someone in linen and stuffing that linen full of spices. I want, I want you to understand what's going down here when Nicodemus comes and adds his, um, his two cents to this. He's adding uh, quite a lot. Remember that, uh, that priceless um, spice that was given, you know, broken on Jesus' feet? That was one pound. They do the English equivalent of about 75 to 80 pounds. Culturally, that type of investment in a funeral, historically, excuse me, it's only been done two other times. One of them was for Herod the Great. 
I mean, what's happening here is these guys are actually affirming in his burial that they believe that this was a king that died. And they, they go through the whole Jewish thing. You know, the, the Egyptians, they would embalm people and then wrap them up. Mummification. Uh, the Romans, they would burn people. There would be a funeral pyre and like the smoke ascending into the heavens was like they're going into the afterlife. The Jews were weird in that world because they did burial. They would bury And they wouldn't embalm, they didn't remove the organs, they would actually just wrap the spices up as an expression of honor, this person's final days, so that those last mourners coming by could have an aromatic experience in this person's death, just as we would go to a funeral today and like convey honor by giving flowers. Maybe you've been to a funeral and there was just maybe just a few little flowers there because the person wasn't well known. Or maybe it was an honorable so-and-so, the death of a judge, the death of a politician, the death of an athlete. What do you have? You have more flowers, more fragrance. I mean, this is a stunning amount. And this, this whole process with this linen is even going to be a setup for further verification later as well. Because they would be wrapped in this expensive linen cloth up to the neck. And then there would be a separate one because the neck's harder to wrap that would be used for the head. And then it would be placed in a little, in a little tomb. And when we think of tombs, we think of mausoleums. Uh, they would actually like chisel these things out of the side of a mountain. They would be lower and into the ground, normally a crawl space of about four feet to get in. And then in that, it is hollowed out And you would have to maximize all that work. You'd actually have notches kind of filled out on the sides so that multiple people could eventually be buried there. But you notice what happens with Jesus. He doesn't go into a pre-existing tomb. The hour's late. They've got to finish this thing before Sabbath. So these guys pony up the, the, the dough to pay for the nearest nice tomb. And it's not used. They don't put Jesus in a family tomb somewhere. They put him in a brand new one. At a great location, a well-known location, one that had a garden, an orchard all the way around it. I mean, like, this is significant. And John doesn't even mention the fact that there's soldiers at guard. He's just saying, like, I want you to note a few things. He's in a new tomb. There's no other bodies in there. This is going to set something up for the future. He's wrapped in linen cloths, which are really expensive, and there's a lot of money sitting in that place. This is going to pay, you need to pay attention. So there's some preparation. But the tomb is indeed sealed. That heavy stone, because it was down in the ground like a cave, a stone could be rolled on it, and like gravity would lock it into place. And of course, the reason why they would do that is not, is not to keep, is not to keep uh, the people in. They, they didn't assume that they were going to come out and come like, walking out. It was because they wanted to keep other people out. Did you know grave robberies were such a problem at this particular time that 10 years later, the emperor Claudius would actually have to institute capital punishment for robbing graves? Because people would put these valuables in the grave with them, and so they would naturally be ransacked. So a tomb is put over the, over the, over the mouth of the cave. There's the preparation. The, the providential stage staging for Jesus' power over death has been set. He, you know what it's like? It's like he's in the proverbial like glass cage on the city street. Have you ever seen like a David Blaine or those stories of Harry Houdini? Like he's, Jesus is putting himself in the most public space possible. There's no curtains. There's no shadows. There's no scantily clad assistants to divert your eye. It is just him dead in a well-trafficked area, guarded, sealed, wrapped, lifeless. But the preparation gives way to an investigation, an investigation. You see that in verses 1 through 10. Notice this, a new character 
just vaguely mentioned in 19, but comes back here. It says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Well, that's, a, <laughs> that's interesting. This Mary Magdalene, we, we don't know. She, John has not introduced us to her. You read the other gospels and you find out that she was a follower of Jesus. She had seven demons in her at one time. Jesus cast them all out. Like We find out that she had an extraordinary love for Jesus. All we know from the Gospel of John is that she was there at the crucifixion standing by Mary, the mother of Jesus. And this lady is devoted because like, it's been Sabbath. And here she is. Like She never really got the chance to like weep at the graveside. And you know what that's like if you've ever been there. Like You want to be by the body, you want to pay your last respects. She didn't get the chance to do it. And so with Jerusalem loaded with people, she and potentially some others with her at this time go like early, early. Like it's still dark outside, but it's still considered dawn. And she shows up and she can see enough through the light that, that the stone has actually been moved from, from the tomb. And, and this this you would think would be like, yay, Jesus is alive. But remember, you got to, this is fact, people don't believe in personal resurrections. Heavier than air machines don't fly. Individual people don't come back to life from the dead. So what does she say? Notice this. Verse 2, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's a pseudonym for John, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. She mentions the other women here. But notice, her first response is, they stole his body. These guys had put him in this nice tomb. We were going to be able to celebrate and commemorate his kingly death on our behalf. Like That's what we were hoping would happen. And yet, she's assuming that maybe these Jewish people, like these Jewish leaders, didn't want him to be, receive such honor in his death. Maybe they were going to transfer him to that mass grave. Maybe they did get political and get his body moved. And she's just thinking, like, they took it. They stole him. He's dead. He's dead for sure. But they stole him. And I guess anytime, like, there's a terrible accident and it's somebody involved with something you love, like, you want to you be there on the scene. You get the call of a, a terrible car accident of a loved one, and, and you're like, let me get there. Let me get there. I want to be there. There's been a death. You're like, I need to be there. In this case, there's been a desecration. Like, the, the body of the Lord has been stolen. Like, so James, excuse me, Peter and John are like, let's go. And so they went out. Verse 3, Peter went out with the other disciple. And they were going to the tomb. And, um, and both of them were running together. They're, they're running. They're sprinting. And I like this. But the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. You know, um, they say winners write history. Uh, John got to include here that he was faster than Peter. <laughs> it's like a secret little jab. I just like to think of like a, this apostolic rivalry going on. I won. And stooping to look in, remember this like basement mini cave concept, like he has to look down in this hole. He saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Now here we see those linen cloths again. They were mentioned three times in the preparation phase of this story. Now they're going to come back up and you're like, linen cloths, who cares, linen cloths? It's a big deal. Um. As I mentioned, even at Jesus' death a couple weeks ago, clothes were a valuable commodity in that culture, textiles. It took a lot of work. I don't know if you understand this, but it takes a lot of work to make fabric. They don't grow on trees. So this is valuable. If somebody was to rob the grave or steal the body, they would not go through the trouble of leaving the one thing that was valuable. So John sees the, the linen cloths and he's thinking, um, this is maybe not a robbery. 
or even if they were just going to try to move his body to another location to desecrate it, like put it in the mass grave, why would you go through the trouble of handling a dead corpse when you could be handling linen? Then Simon Peter came, huffing and puffing, I imagine. But he gives Simon Peter some credit because uh, John only steps into the tomb, I mean like peeks into the tomb at first. Peter, big and bold, uh, went into the tomb. And this is interesting. It says that he saw the linen cloths lying there. I don't like to do this all the time. I think it's relevant here. The word saw here is different than the word saw used earlier in the Greek. First saw is just, I see it. This one comes from the Greek word from which we get theater. It means like to observe prolongedly, like to, to gaze, to, to, to note because he's in there and he's close, like he's looking around, he's inspecting the scene more closely, and he sees and observes those linen cloths. So he gets similar thoughts as John, like, uh-oh, this is not a grave robbery, but he sees something else. Notice what he, what he also sees, verse 7, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, I want you to get what's going down here because it's pretty interesting. Whatever has happened, these cloths are just lying there, and that could kind of seem like a jumbled mess. But whoever was in there took the time to take that separate linen wrapped around the head to fold it up nicely and to put it in a corner. Like as if the fact that the grave clothes aren't left behind is enough. Whoever was in there like did something intentional to let the other people know that someone's been here. So Peter observes this. And that's weird. And I don't know what the conversation is. All we know is what happens next. Verse 8. Then the other disciple, John, who was first scared to go in, it seems... He reached, the one who had reached the tomb first, he also went in, and notice this in verse 8, he saw and believed. Like, he's seeing that something's going down here, whereas Mary thinks that, okay, this was a grave robbery because she never looked in. Peter is thinking like, okay, this is not a grave robbery, the linens are still here. John takes it a step farther, and it says that he actually believed. I love the way one author put it. I just want to read this. It's beautiful. He says, something quite new surges up in the young disciple. A wild delight at God's creative power. He remembers the moment even afterwards. A a different sensation. A bit like falling in love. A bit like sunrise. A bit like the sound of rain at the end of a long drought. A bit like faith. Oh, he'd had faith before He had believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He had believed that God had sent him, that he was the man for God's people and for God's world. But this was different. He saw and believed. His his belief now has gone to a new level. He's not just thinking. He's not just thinking at this point, okay, this isn't a grave robbery. He's thinking that the Lord is indeed alive in some way, shape, or form. Like maybe he thinks... Maybe he thinks that he's just ascended up to heaven because that's what Jesus said he would do. Notice how John uh, wants us to to understand that they didn't know what was going on. This is so important. You look at it in your text. Verse 9, he adds this, For, it says he believed, For as yet they did not understand from the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. You know why this matters? It's not as if like they had a bunch of Old Testament passages that they were really clear on and they're looking for this to happen. The passages were there. They were hidden in plain sight. We read one of them today in Psalm 16:8. This messianic figure who experiences the delight of God somehow avoids the corruption of the grave. And they were just thinking like, well, that's an awful strong hyperbole there, but okay, sure. Like, they just looked right past it. They didn't think about the fact, like, okay, that's impossible. 
We should be looking for a Davidic figure that so enjoys the pleasure of God uh, that his soul is not abandoned to the grave. There were other places in the Old Testament that Jesus would have to come and, uh, excuse me, in the New Testament where he'd show up to people and he'd have to show them himself in the scriptures. They couldn't see it till he showed it to them, Luke 24 namely. These guys, they're not looking for this to happen. That doesn't happen. And yet, in this, he sees, whoa, something's happened. <laughs> and here's the one more feature of this I want to point out. He sees it without seeing Jesus. He believes without seeing Jesus. He's convinced. This isn't clear to them yet in the Scripture's And I don't know what happens next here. It seems strange. But they're so dumbfounded. And I think you get this. When when you're truly shocked, I'm not talking like it's your surprise birthday party and you called it three weeks ago and you're like, oh. I'm talking like when you're truly shocked. Like when you get in a car accident. You never expect those. Like, what's going on? You're disoriented. John may believe that something indeed has happened, But he's like processing. And it says in verse 10, then the disciples went back to their homes. The stunned men go back to their Jerusalem Airbnb, wherever they're doing this Passover thing. And so the preparation has given way to an investigation. John's readers still aren't sure exactly what's happened to Jesus. All we have so far is a good idea of what hasn't happened, namely that the body was stolen. We still don't know what has happened to the crucified Lord until the revelation of verses 11 through 18. Preparation, investigation, revelation. Let's look at it. Mary, she hasn't been heard from. Maybe she got there later. They ran. But it says in verse 11, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She wasn't privy to the results of this investigation. She wasn't there to hear that conversation. Or maybe she was around the corner in shame, crying. Because women didn't typically cry in front of men. Even now, woman starts to tear up because of her insensitive jerk husband. What does she do? She covers her face. She gets out of public eye. It's just the way it works. Mary's been around the corner. She doesn't know what's going down at this point, and yet she's left there now by herself, or maybe the other ladies are with her. But she finally works up the nerve to like actually investigate the scene a little more for herself and. She, she peeks in, it says, and she sees next what no one else could predict. Look at verse 12. She saw, and that's that stronger Greek word again, observed, noticed, two angels in white sitting there, or where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and the other at the feet. Like, well, that was unexpected. Like, we expected her to see some linen cloths and a folded napkin. And what she ends up seeing is two angels. And this is a revelation of God because anybody who's like read, I don't know, at least eight chapters of the Old Testament understands that God regularly communicated in supernatural ways with his people through angels. The the Greek word angelos means messenger. They're his divine messengers. Like God could send a message through normal means. He could plant a thought in somebody's brain. But when he wants to like make it ultra evident that he's saying something that is over and above the natural order, he sends angels. And guess what? These angels are in full uniform, stunning white. But angels do typically take on the form of human beings. So this is strange to me. Like in her grief, like she doesn't say, whoa, an angel. I get it. She's just crying her eyes out. And sure, after the fact, she realizes they're angels. But God has done something supernatural to reveal that this was no mere grave robbery. And so they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? 
They're so careful. They, they want her to understand that her greatest sorrow is not actually a sorrow at all. They're expressing care. They're attempting to lead her. I just say that to all of you who are trying to minister to others in grief. Ask questions. Don't make statements. Are you okay? Why is it so bad? What's hurting? Why are you weeping? They're trying to, to point her to the, an alternate explanation. This isn't, this isn't what you think it is. And, and she doesn't even again, register the angel piece here. All she says is, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Clearly, she's still thinking this was a robbery or or some kind of politically manipulated desecration. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. I totally get it. These two guys, she thinks at this time, ask her a question. She faces them. Their question causes her to cry more. What does she naturally do? She wants to turn around. And through her tears, she sees a person that John already knows is Jesus, but she doesn't know it's Jesus. And if you've ever cried that hard, you totally understand why. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Notice, Jesus is doing the same thing. And this rhetorical, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? Like he's, he's pointing her to himself. The speech act theory. We get it in in an aggressive way sometimes where somebody says, why didn't you do the dishes? They don't really want to know why you didn't do the dishes. They're telling you to do the dishes. Read between the lines, friends. Jesus isn't truly wondering why she's weeping. He's not truly dumbfounded about who she's looking for. He's gently trying to help her see that what she ultimately thinks is sorrow is satisfaction. And who she ultimately thinks is gone is standing right in front of her, and so he takes it a step further. And Jesus said to her, Mary. I love the way that he makes himself known. So personal. So tender, so intimate. He, he makes himself known as alive and present and available and ready and willing to fulfill his promises to save. How does he do that? He does it by calling her name. He knows her. Isn't that how he works? Think about it, friends. Isn't that how God works? What is it that he said back in John 10? My sheep hear my voice and come unto me. Like they, they, they recognize him. When he reveals himself, they know that's God. That is him. The evidence is all around him. And so she turns. And evidently she had turned away from her supposed grief again because she just can't get away from these people trying to look at her while she's crying. But she turns back to him and says in Aramaic, this is her heart language, Rabboni, which means teacher or my teacher. This was the term that she used to address him. This was an appropriate expression of respect, but it was her name for him. Like she sees who he is. She knows it. They're like he's actually alive. His body wasn't stolen. Like this is her loving authority, like standing right there in front of her. And like her natural instinct at this point, and you could just see it, would be to like actually like hug him, to like show some physical affection. And notice what Jesus does here. This is so important. He says, he said to her, do not cling unto me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. 
You're like, what's he doing? How insensitive? Why doesn't he let her hold on to him? He's got something that he's trying to say. He's he's communicating that the resurrection is not the final fulfillment of his end-time plan to be with him forever. He's like, look, I know I'm alive. I know I'm back. But like, this isn't isn't the time yet where we're going to be able to lovingly enjoy one another's embrace forever. Don't hold on to me yet. There's still other steps in this exaltation program that needs to take place. I like to think of it this way. If on the cross, Jesus hits the home run by saying, it is finished and giving up his life, he then begins to go around the bases. You don't score the run till your foot touches the plate. And so to first base, he goes. It is death. And then it is resurrection. And then to second base, he goes, ascended into heaven, being coronated as the king of kings. And he rounds his way to third in his session, and he's sitting there. And then he initiates his return as he rounds third. And when his foot steps on this earth, the program is complete, and the physical enjoyment of one another forever and ever and ever begins. This is why it matters, because some of us are thinking, first base, why is he not showing up like I want him to now? Why is he not physically present? He's just at first base. Let him run the bases. What a powerful statement. And notice what he's communicating in this. He's saying, look, I, I'm going. I'm going to be ascended, just like I told you. And I want you to go tell the disciples this. They need to know that everything I said in that upper room is on schedule. I am ascending to my Father, just as you said. But I love how he says this. He says, I ascend to my Father and to your Father, and to my God and to your God. What he's saying in this is that, yeah, we now enjoy this relationship with the Father. We both have this unique relationship with God. But I relate to the Father in one way, and you relate to Him another way. I relate to Him as God in one way, you relate to Him as God in another way. I mean, Jesus was eternally generated from the Father. Like, that's why he was called the Son. And Jesus was uniquely recognized as the Messiah in the Old Testament called the Son of God. See Psalm 2. Like, he had a unique relationship as God and Father, but so also do we enter in on that relationship. And he's saying, like, look, even though you can't physically enjoy my presence right now in the way that you eventually will be able to, like, things are good. Like, he's your God. He's your father. The program's on schedule. And so he just says, and this is amazing, because he entrusts her with an unbelievable honor. You go tell them that I'm alive. This is crazy. This is crazy. Because the way The way that things would have been most credible and kosher in that culture would have been for Jesus to show up to two full-grown men who could have affirmed this to others officially, and yet Jesus says, I don't work that way. I'm going to use what the world perceives, not what Christians perceive, but what the world perceives as weak and foolish to be the first one to ever herald the gospel. The greatest news ever told was proclaimed by the lips of a woman to the apostles themselves. What a dignity. What a beauty. And this would ultimately actually affirm the credibility of the Christian message. If the guys were making it up, would they really have wrote Mary Magdalene in to be the first one to see and testify to the risen Lord? God uses the weak and the foolish things to overcome the world. This is amazing. And so verse 18 says that Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things for her. It took... Six years 
Six more years for the public to believe that the Wright brothers had actually flown. And you know the way that it was finally made known? Like, the first time it was officially verified, it was in the most unlikely source. It was a guy who was a Sunday school teacher. No kidding. He had a junior boy Sunday school class. He saw it. He told the kids about it in his Sunday school class. The parents came to him and said, why are you telling our kids that stuff? People don't fly. So he's like, I'll show you. So this guy was, a, was like a professional beekeeper. And he even published a scientific journal called Gleanings in Bee Culture. And he actually took his scientific journal, peer-reviewed, and on March 1st, 1904, he actually publishes for the first time, broad scale, that the Wright brothers had invented a flying machine. Isn't that crazy? It gets crazier. People still didn't believe it. No one would actually believe it until the government, the U.S. government, set up a demonstration in Fort Myers, Virginia, to finally, and I'm not kidding, this is what one of the guys were quoted as saying, to put an end to this Wright Brothers business. The government got involved. And the moment Orville Wright lifted the plane off the ground, the crowd gasped in astonishment. After flying at 40 miles per hour, maneuvering in in and every direction for over an hour nonstop, Orville landed the plane he was rushed by the newspaper men, and each one of them had tears streaming down his cheeks. When the editors were asked about it in retrospect, like, why didn't you believe? Why didn't you believe? So I guess, said Cumler, who was one of the editors, grinning after a moment's reflection, the truth is that we were just plain dumb. Something so obvious, something so impossible, but so verified. How do you not believe it? Can we review these evidences quickly? Think about it. The place he was buried, not just a mass grave, but an identifiable location. A pushed away stone. Not first interpreted as he's alive, but oh no, somebody stole his body. Nobody was looking for this to happen. The pile of clothes revealed that his body had somehow gone through those clothes. It ruled out robbery. It revealed some kind of intentionality. There's a folded napkin there, a face cloth. The presence of angels that signaled divine intervention. The presence of the Lord as he shows up in body. <laughs> As evidenced by that forbidden touch, and he looks like any other man, be verified more later. The prescribed good news that this resurrection is only one part in the plan, but there's more to come. If you're dissatisfied with, with what you see now and this like Christian experience, and you're hoping there more, there's more, like Jesus is like, oh, oh, good news. There's still more to come. I get it. And then the person who carried the good news, it was first entrusted to a woman who faithfully heralds the message. Say, so, uh, just that's a great story. I love it. Thank you. Thank you for uh, reminding us of this. Uh, why does it matter? Sometimes hard to believe things can seem rather irrelevant. It's kind of like when I hear people talk about the existence of UFOs or life on another planet. I'm like, well, even if there was, who cares? God made it. You know, like I just it doesn't seem that relevant to me. Why does this matter? There's three reasons why this matters, friends, and I have to say this quickly, and I'm kicking myself here for not giving more time, but here's the first one. It is the vindication of the crucified Lord. He was in the right. It seemed like all the stuff that had happened to him, like there's no way that this was God's man. There's no way that this was God's hero. And by him coming back to life again, to be the only person to overcome that on his own, it's like, yeah, it was. Here he is. This is exactly what he said he would do. And now that we see it in the Old Testament, we can't unsee it. This was indeed God's man. He was vindicated as Lord. 
And though the Roman government tried to quash him, like, like they tried to absolutely annihilate him, the strongest empire arguably in the history of the universe, relatively speaking, he overcomes it and he ends up 300 years later overcoming Rome itself. And now one billion people around this world to some degree or another claim and confess that Jesus is Lord and risen again from the dead. He's the Lord. And friends, this is good news. It is news. It is not good opinions. It is not good instructions. It is an accomplished fact. It is something that has already happened. These evidences affirm it. He is our Lord. It is relevant for us. Here's the second reason. Not just the, 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 does it vindicate our Lord. It underscores the emphasis of our message. This is, this is our emphatic message, friends. This is, this is what we preach as a church. This is what we herald. This is what we geek out on. The resurrected Jesus. And like we're in this world where it just becomes so easy for us to focus on so much. And we know so much about the Bible. And we can argue for so many other things. And isn't it strange? Isn't it strange that like it seems like we only talk about the resurrection at Easter? I tried to look for hymns to sing. I'm not kidding. Hymn book from a well-established seminary that I know very well. And there was only like six hymns on the resurrection. And I'm kind of thinking, like, what in the world are we singing about all the time? Compare it to Christmas. I love the way one guy put it. He said, ask people around the world what they think the biggest day of the year is for Christians. Most will say Christmas. That's what our society has achieved, a romantic midwinter festival that we don't actually know what time of year Jesus was born, from which most of the things that really matter, the danger, the politics, are carefully excluded. The true answer, and I wish the churches would find ways of making this clear, is Easter. This is the moment of new creation. If it hadn't been for Easter, nobody would have ever dreamed of celebrating Christmas. This is the first day of God's new week. The darkness has gone. The sun is shining. Friends, this is what we do every Sunday, and this is what we need to be doing every Sunday. You know, that's why they moved their worship to Sunday, because that's when he rose again. Like, every week we come together and say, hey, he's still alive. Wow, he's still alive. <laughs> like, that's what we're telling one another. And it's, isn't it great that, that, that communion, celebrating his death, that his broken body and his shed blood, happens in the context of celebrating his life. Like, through that, we have life. He overcame that. He's alive. That's what we're doing here. We're not getting ammunition for our next theological debate at Starbucks. We're not here looking for a list of rules to beat up ourselves or others with. We're heralding news of an accomplished fact of what Jesus has already done for us. This is a party. And to the brother clapping, thank you. Because we're celebrating something. It's not weird. Here's the last one. I'm over time. This is encouragement. This is encouragement for the dying. Death is no longer our greatest dread. Because Christ has defeated it permanently. So we have aching and ailing bodies. I was just having dinner with somebody the other night, and they were close to my age and just a little older, and they were just talking about, oh, it's getting old, getting old. It seems like everybody I talk to these days that's like my age is like, oh, it's so weird getting old. And I'm like, man, can we talk about something else, please? But I get it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate the physical de decay of life. Celebrating Thanksgiving this year without my grandmother in light of July, and I'm just thinking, I hate that I'm not seeing her. I know she's alive, but I can't, I can't touch her. I can't see her. And I see what happens to my body, to our bodies, and we hate it. We fight it with everything we've got. The wellness industry in the United States is multi-billion. We're all trying to like fight it in every way we can. And yet, somebody's already fought it. And somebody's already won. And the freedom is already guaranteed. 
It's not just we're going to have some spiritual existence somewhere, but we will be alive in body forevermore with Jesus. He was the first fruits of our resurrection. I say that to those of you who are struggling with death or dying. There's hope here. Your representative has overcome. His death was applied to you and his resurrection as well. And so we find hope. In fact, in the affirmation that the crucified king has risen again. Let's pray in light of that. Lord Jesus, you've you have slain our greatest enemy. You have outlasted the wrath due us our sin. And you have risen again in power, showing yourself to be the true redeemer, ruler, hero, boss. And we joyfully submit afresh to you, trusting you for that full and final fruit of your victory when you return and yet we enjoy it now in the spirit we're grateful so we rejoice and yet we are concerned for those who have not yet laid down their weapons of rebellion against the king and leaned in on him exclusively for salvation Lord grant saving faith to those who are in rebellion today and we ask all of this in Jesus name amen